You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Providence Community Church. It's good to have you. Uh, happy Fourth of July weekend. I hope you guys got a good chance to celebrate. Uh, my name is Eric. If you don't know me, I serve on staff here. and just want to welcome you in. Uh, at Providence, we always say this, but... We are a people that are devoted to a single and compelling vision, and that's to make the gospel of Jesus Christ unignorable in our city. That's our aim and passion, and to that end, every single week we open up God's word because we believe that our Bibles uh, have everything we need to know, worship, and obey Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So we love the word of God because we believe it's in the word of God that we find the gospel and everything we need in Christ. So... We are in a sermon series called The Great Eight. We are exploring Romans chapter 8, and we are looking at the promises of God, the encouragements of God in this text, which are enormous. Um, And so uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9 today. If you have the joy of having your Bibles this morning, you could turn there uh, to Romans chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we do have some hardback black ones in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those. It'll be on page 944 in those Bibles. And we'll also have it on the screen uh, if technology is your thing. All right, so Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9. And if you're able to this morning, when we get there, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9. So, Providence, hear the Word of the Lord. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to say happy 4th of July weekend. So glad that you're able to join us. I want to say welcome. Welcome to everybody who's joining online and obviously in person. Uh, We just want to say we're glad that you made us a part of your week. Um, Like Eric said, we are uh, continuing our sermon series entitled The Great Eight as we walk through uh, Romans chapter 8. In case uh, you don't know who I am, my name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And so I'm eager and excited to kind of continue in. We've been walking verse by verse, line by line uh, through Romans chapter 8, talking about the promises of God. And uh, what I'd like to do, since we're probably, uh, we're starting to kind of take a turn in, in chapter number eight, I- I'm going to, I know Eric just read the particular focus text that we're going to be in. <clears throat> I just want to start at verse one. I'm going to read through verse 11 and then pray and ask the Lord to, to help us this morning. So you don't have to stand or anything, but you can just kind of follow along. And what I want to do is just kind of frame where we've been and where we're headed just by reading those first 11 verses aloud. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the, thing, on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. If you'll bow your heads, let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Um, thank you that we have the freedom to, to read your word aloud, um, to sing to you. Uh, we've been given that great privilege to do so without fear of retribution or um, fear of censorship. And, and we're just so grateful, my God, that we have that opportunity and, and we don't want to take it for granted. So we say thank you. And we also pray for our brothers and sisters all around the world who don't have that privilege. And we ask that you would give them great courage in the face of adversity, great strength, and most of all, my God, you'd give them joy that only comes from you in the face of hardship like that. And so now, my Lord, we ask, um, Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts that your word would find follow ground there? And that there would be fruit that's produced as your word is, is sown into our hearts. Um, that we would begin to be changed. Our affections, our desires, our minds, our will. Uh, conform us to your image, Lord Jesus. And we pray that it would be for your glory, for our good, and for our joy. We just need your help. We know it's not our disposition, it's not our inclination, so just help us, God, now we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. So these 11 verses, of course, are full, chocked full of wonderful, amazing truth, particularly truth about God. So Romans uh, chapter 8, we've already said, has no imperatives in it, actually. It has no commands in it explicitly. It's a chapter about God's glory. It's a chapter about God's grace. It's a chapter about just how amazing God is. And, and here's the thing that we need to make mention of. I didn't mention this before. If you take away the articles like and or the or is out of the book of Romans itself, uh, and, you, and you just did an algorithm and said, what's the word that's most commonly used in the book of Romans? The word most commonly used by Paul in the book of Romans is God. Every 46 words you hear Paul talking about God. So it's not primarily us that Paul's talking about. It's not primarily our sin, although he addresses our sin. It's not primarily the law or the Old Testament, although he addresses those things. It's not historical figures like Adam, although he addresses those things. It's God. The heart of the book of Romans, and I would say the heart of the heart of the book of Romans, which is Romans 8, is a story. It's a message about just how glorious God is. And Paul right here, in particular, in verses 9 through 11, he's talking about the glories of God that by faith, you and I, every person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ belongs to Jesus. What an amazing truth. We belong to Christ. 
Now, obviously, he's doing that in the negative term. He's doing it by saying the opposite, right? He's saying if we don't have the Spirit, then we don't belong to Jesus. But then, of course, the reverse would be true, too, which is that if we do have the Spirit, which we know, how do we, how do we get the Spirit? Well, we don't get the Spirit by, you know, getting in line for it and making sure that we're there early and making sure that we do good. You know, we get the Spirit. Everyone in this room and everyone who's watching me online has everything that it takes in order to receive the Spirit, and you have it in spades, namely sin, <laughs> And brokenness, that's what we all have. We have it in spades and what we need is the acknowledgement of that and coming open-handedly to Christ and saying, what you have is everything that I need and what I have is nothing. And the spirit dwells in our hearts. And of course, what Paul's saying here is that we belong to Jesus. Now this idea of belonging, I think it requires some thought. What does it mean to belong to Christ first? And then secondarily, if we don't belong to Christ Whom then do we belong to? Because I think that's important too. It drives back to the question of authority, of course. Like for instance, if uh, wives in the room are moms, um, or or maybe you just have a roommate, when you have your roommate goes through the house, or if my mom goes through the house, whose shoes are these in the middle of the floor? By the way, if you're married, that's rhetorical, right? Because your spouse already knows whose shoes they are. But it's a question of ownership. Who owns these shoes? Who's responsible for these shoes? That's not taking responsibility for these shoes. Or if you're at a party, maybe you're at a July 4th party, you're at home group, you're ready to leave, you get in your car. Anybody had this happen? It's miserable. You get in your car, you put it in reverse, someone's behind you. So you kind of put it back in, you know, park and you go back in. And if you're going back into somewhere where you need masks now, that's even worse. So you put your mask on. And your question is, whose car is this? Or to whom does this truck belong? You probably don't speak like that, but just, you know, whose truck you're asking about ownership. You're asking about responsibility. Somebody figured this out. Or, you know, at Providence, we have tons of kids. They run around everywhere. And so, you, you know, we ask each other, like, whose kid is this? Which at Providence, it's all of our kids, right? They're all trouble. But we're asking about responsibility. We're asking about, you know, who's responsible for this, for this child, right? It's a parenting question. And obviously, the idea always either drives back to ownership, responsibility, or authority. And what we know, according to the biblical narrative, is that God, of course, is the capital L-O-R-D, Lord of our lives. He owns all things, which would include us. He created us. He's not just creator, he's master, he's Lord. When we place our faith in Christ, we are his. But Paul here is alluding to the fact that it's not true about everyone. How can this be? How can that be true? Did God not create everyone? Of course, we have to affirm that's true. Did he not entirely place himself in charge of every life, sovereign owner of all things? Of course, that's true. So what does Paul mean here when he says that those who are apart from Christ don't belong to him? Well, in order to understand Paul, you have to understand, which at the beginning of this year, we did a little bit of work here. Coronavirus decided to do what it's done to all of us, right? Just ruin everything. But we did some work in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And and in Genesis 3, the storyline goes that God lays out for for our first parents this proposition, which would be that there's two trees that are introduced, the tree of life in the center of the garden, of which you and I, our first parents, were given the opportunity to feast on. It's kind of a good deal. You feast on the tree of life all that you want. Then there's another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, the only tree do not eat of this tree. Serpent enters in and begins a conversation with Eve. And remember what the deception is based around. It's not that God wants your good, So God, creator, owner, authority, wants your good. It's that the owner, creator, authority of all things actually is holding out on you because he knows, quote, if you eat of it, you will be like gods. 
So he just doesn't want you to be like him. So there was something to be ascertained here. And it's in this moment in Genesis 3 that what we see, and this is what Paul's aiming at, is that our first parents, and so by connection, you and I, relinquished wholeheartedly and willfully our status as members of God's family under the authority care of God. So it was a giving away of belonging that happened. And it was willfully given away by you and by me. You see, the temptation of the serpent here is a temptation towards autonomy, to reject the command of God, reject his authority, reject his ownership, his rule, and to take up a new law unto yourself. You become a new law unto yourself. This was the temptation to Eve. It's a temptation that each and every one of us still get today. Eve chose to belong to no one, but to be free of God. It was, and especially on a July 4th weekend, this might be important for us, this idea of freedom that was presented to Eve was to be free of God and autonomous unto herself. And little did she know that to be free of God would then lead that she would be enslaved, her and her husband, everywhere else and to anyone else, namely that was more powerful. In a sense, to not belong to God is to lose our very sense of being at all. And I use that word meticulously, being is inextricably linked to belonging. Being is inextricably linked to belonging. What do I mean by that? To belong to God is to know that we exist. To belong to God is to know that we matter, that we are valued and valuable, that we were created by someone. We are loved, cherished, precious, whole, secure, and check this out, on purpose. Like not accidental, not incidental, but on purpose. To belong to God is to really, truly be. And to reject belonging to God is to fall into unbeing. Or to reject this identity altogether is to run from the beauty and the safety of the Garden of Eden and into the harsh outer darkness, right? That is really exile. And that's what Paul's getting out here. He's basically saying that for all of us who are outside of Christ, that there was, because there was no belonging, there was this exile. We had left home and we were out in the middle of nowhere, lost, purposeless, meaningless, vanity, and only nihilism exists out there. Now, I'm going to use a name that I'm sure at least a few of you, maybe all of you have heard of. But many of us lose sight of just how uh, influential this man's thoughts were, particularly in the 20th century thought. He's a man named Friedrich Nietzsche, and he was a German philosopher. Um, And he lived in the 19th century. So think, he was born roughly in the 1850s, and he he died in 1900. Um, And he began postulating uh, about life and the things of life, asserting that God is dead. This... Later on, like 60 years after his death, you guys remember the Time Magazine article that said God is dead, right? This is, this is coming far uh, past when Nietzsche first started to postulate about the death of God. And here's the thing about Nietzsche. For all of his flaws, and he had many, we're going to read some quotes here in a second, there's some dark stuff. There's one thing that we have to give him credit for, and that is that he was very logically consistent with that argument. That if God is dead, then he would say, and that means this must be true. And namely, the this was the nihilism. And nihilism just simply means that life is meaningless. Because God was dead to Nietzsche, that meant that there wasn't a meaning that we could all ascertain 
transcendently from outside of ourselves about existence, that basically this was all that there was. And so we had to make with it what we could make with it. But there was no sense of suffering. There was no, they couldn't make sense of hardship. You couldn't make sense of difficulty. And that was a big, big deal to Nietzsche because he struggled with the problem of suffering and evil like many of us do. He, he began to postulate that there would be the Ubermensch or the Uberman. And the Uberman was a strong man that would arise. Now that God was dead, someone would have to step up and make a new meaning in life. And this Uberman would stand forth and create meaning for people because people were searching for a strong man and that strong man would provide it. He made the case that God was simply a means through which the priest played on others' guilt. And in their moment of greatest suffering, they would merely point their finger back at the sufferer and say, it's your fault. And that really ticked Nietzsche off. Now, of course, his misguided view of suffering and evil just continued to entrench him in the conclusion that God was dead and that the only way to face hardship was to, quote, he said you had to face the abyss. That's what he called life. Real cheery stuff. He said you have to face the abyss and it will face you back down. He says but you have to be careful because it might make you a monster too because he saw life as this big evil monster that you had to face down and overpower and conquer. And you had to make yourself into something of a god. Um, Some of the quotes from Nietzsche are things like this. There are no facts, there are only interpretations. So no absolute truth, because if there is no God, then you're just interpreting the existence around you. He also went on to say, no one can construct for you the bridge upon which you you precisely must cross the stream of life. No one except you. So he basically saw life as this big chasm, this big darkness, and you have to build a bridge across it to get to the other side and make a meaning for yourself or or else nothing. Just it's on you. One of my favorite quotes from Nietzsche, not because it's at all cheery, it's actually really dark, but it really sums up his understanding of life. He says this to the Christians in his book called Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is his prophet. He says, you look up when you wish to be exalted, and I look down because I am exalted. This was his understanding of the Christians. He saw them as weak you're on your knees waiting for God to exalt you. What a joke. I look down because I already have exalted. I've already done something to make meaning of my life. You look up hoping you're going to receive it. Now, of course, these ideas have consequences, right? And I just want to make mention that's something you might want to write down. Ideas have consequences. It's important for today. The consequences to some of these ideas that were espoused by Nietzsche are found in the travesties of the 20th century. There's a lot of disagreement about this that I found online, although I can't help but think that it's impossible for us not to at least acknowledge that there is some truth to the idea that the philosopher of choice in the Nazi regime was Nietzsche. He was a German philosopher. He was very influential, and he precedes the Nazi regime. And, and I think most historians say that. There's some disagreement about that now, but I just can't imagine that we would say that Hitler and the SS didn't know anything of him. That's a complete farce. And so basically that was the philosopher of choice that led to the Holocaust. And if we think of Nietzsche's understanding of the Ubermensch or the Ubermann, is there any better embodiment than Adolf Hitler himself, the Ubermann? The strong man who makes meaning for a group of people, again, who felt like they had been basically snuffed out and purposeless, and he stands strong to develop meaning for them. But we got to ask the question, why do these ideas create this outcome? Because let's agree, like, people are crazy all the time. If you haven't met crazy people, you just haven't met people. So how did they create this? 
Well, Paul is developing this range of thought pretty simply. He says it like this. When we don't belong to God, we end up belonging to ourselves, the flesh. And the flesh is weak. And it's disposed toward great selfishness and great self-exaltation. Paul says, our perceived freedom from God, or you could think God is dead. Our perceived freedom from God always leads to our own self-destruction. It always leads to things like war or death or murder or genocide or terrible things. Because not to belong to God is to begin to unravel. It's to begin to develop into non-being. It's a trajectory of degradation and subhumanity. And I want you to think about the atrocities of the 20th century. And you can see that to be the Uberman, whether it's in your life or whether it's over a government or whether it's trying to conquer the world, to be an always lends itself to something subhuman. When you think about the great evil dictators of the 20th century, we always think they're not even really human. And I think there's a part of that that is half true, which is they had committed themselves to this degradation away and apart from God. So it's what allows you to do the most evil that you could ever do. Because, again, one thing we have to give Nietzsche the credit for is that he's logically consistent. If there is no God, we get to make the rules. <laughs> and as John Piper says, that means that might always makes right. Power always decides. Now, we have to ask a better question. Better question than to just talk about the dark side, and that's pretty dark stuff. Is then what is Paul saying here? It means to belong to Christ. Because that's Paul's focus here. His focus is not really on the not belonging, although he's bringing light to that. He's saying that we belong to Christ, and we know this because the Spirit dwells in us. So what does it mean to belong to Christ? Well, we see in verse 10, it means to belong to Christ is that the Spirit brings life to us in this world and in this body of death, and that we can live a life of human flourishing. That's what it says in verse 10. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But I want to point out five joyful benefits of belonging to Jesus. And then we'll move into the last verse and kind of be done this morning. What are five amazing benefits of what it means to belong to Christ? Okay, let's start with the first one. First Corinthians six verses 19 through 20. This is Paul. He says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy spirit within you whom you have from who from God? Check this out. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So what's the implication? So glorify God in your body. The first amazing reward of belonging to Christ is that we can live a life that makes God look glorious. We can live a life that glorifies God. Or another way to put that would be, you know, Paul said earlier, we can't even please God if we live in the flesh. But for those of us who belong to Christ, you can live a life that's pleasing to God, despite the fact that you and I, on a regular basis, do things we wish we didn't do and don't do things that we wish we did do. That even still, because of the Spirit, we can please God. That's kind of a good deal, right? What about number two? Galatians 5, verse 24. Those who, give this word, belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What's the good news here? We are no longer destined to be enslaved to our animal instincts, but instead can choose to do good. So when someone says to you, I couldn't help it. For the Christian, there's a half truth there. You couldn't help but have a disposition towards the darkness, but you can help because the spirit lives in you on acting on it. 
because the Spirit is willfully leading us into truth and goodness. And that before that, we were enslaved to our passions. Okay, three and four to go together. This one's a little Old Testament on you, but, but, but put your uh, Bible mind on here. We are the true children of Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 29 says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Wow. You probably didn't think when you came into church today, I was going to tell you you're a spiritual Jew and that's a good thing. But that's exactly what this text is telling us, that because of Christ, we are Abraham's offspring, and that means the inheritance of Abraham is ours. Well, what's the inheritance of Abraham, Court? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 through 23. So let no one boast in men. Why? For all things are yours. That's a pretty good inheritance. You've never read a will and testament that extensive. How many things? All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, <laughs> that's, that's good, or life, that's good. Check this one out. You now conquered and owned death by the spirit that lives in you. Death is now your servant who will be your taxi cab driver from this world into the presence of God where you'll live eternally with him with a glorified body. That's great news. Whether the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Listen to this link. Because God sent Christ to rescue us from our damnation and sin, now we are in Christ or we belong to Christ who belongs to God and we will inherit all things. This is why Jesus can say without blushing in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek will inherit the earth. That is not allegorical. It's because he owns it and you're now his kids. So he gets to decide, just like you will when your kids get older, which ones are going to ruin the inheritance and which ones deserve it. The only difference is we don't deserve it on our own basis, but because of Christ's righteousness. What great news. Okay, lastly, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now this speaks to the body, verse 22 through 28. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ is the first fruits. And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the father, after destroying every rule, every authority, every power, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Now check this out, that God may be all and in all. Listen to that, that God may be all and in all. God is both owner, authority, supreme creator and ruler, and his purpose is that he might be in you through the spirit because of Christ. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Not just that Emmanuel, God, was with us in Christ when he came to the world, but that upon the ascension of Jesus into heaven, he sends the Spirit so that God would be in you doing a work. That's next level, isn't it? Not just that God is creator, ruler, not just that God is friend in Christ, but that God is in you and I through the Spirit. And that that's his point, that's his plan. He wants to be in us. That's why Paul has this theology of us being the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty powerful stuff. But what is he saying here? He's saying that that means that one day the spirit and the body will unify again, that upon 
Christ's final return, that Jesus has a plan that's not just for our spirit. We're not just going to be this ethereal spirit in the heavenlies, but that we actually will have a glorified body. And that whether it be cancer that racks your body right now, or whether it be another sickness, or whether perhaps one of, all of us will die in some way, shape, or form. But Paul is saying here that for the Christian, we can look into the face of cancer and say, what a loser. We've, the spirit has conquered cancer. Cancer could do many things to the body that are awful and miserable, but it can do nothing to the promise of our glorified body. And it is only temporary, whatever suffering it does. It can't steal hope. It can't steal joy. It can't steal peace. It can't steal eternal realities and promises. What a loser. And even cancer ends up being our servant and that if the Lord decides to heal us or if the Lord decides to take us on, cancer will ultimately once again just be our Uber driver to glory. Good for us. This is why Paul can say to live as Christ, to die as gain. He has such a rock solid understanding of the spirit of God in him. Okay. Now I'm just going to speak for myself, but I think that maybe you might resonate with me here. I think we need more of this. I am, I don't need any more bad news. Anybody else? I'm just done with it. I don't want any more. I'm tired of bad news. What I need more of, I do not think that the Christian church struggles with over-encouragement. I don't feel that way. I don't know about you. I don't feel super encouraged waking up. I turn on the news. It just is not, I don't know. Doesn't feel a lot like whenever I was growing up watching like lamb chops, you know? Mr. Rogers, stuff like that. That just isn't my reality. I turn on the news, I'm like, why why are things worse every day somehow? I think we can't get lower than we are today. Nope. It's a certainty. We can do it. You know, used to be such a thing as satire news. Now it's just news all the way across the board. Satire, parody, just that has become our reality. I don't need any more bad news. And Paul seems to be here all about some really good news. He's talking about how the spirit gives us life or human flourishing. God is about the business of bringing life to us. When you look around and all you see is a city of death. I mean, you got to check out what he's saying here in, in you got to think, well, well, don't think, well, that's Paul. You know, he didn't, he didn't deal with a worldwide pandemic. Listen to me. He's writing this to Romans in Rome. It's not a socially swell moment. Under the Emperor Claudius, it was pretty bad. And that's a euphemism for bad, awful. And he's saying, man, how awesome it is to live life on this side of eternity and in the next with Christ. That's, I need that. I need to know and be reminded that Christ, through the Spirit, is all about the business of human flourishing and that that's personal for me that he wants that for me and that he is going to accomplish that in me. Listen to this commentator. He's going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount here, but he's going to talk about human flourishing and just how important human flourishing in life is in the New Testament and in the Old. He says this, human flourishing is in fact a key biblical theme woven through the whole canon of scripture. One which, when recognized, explains and enhances some of the most foundational aspects of the Bible's testimony, including the very nature and goal of God's redemption for us in Christ, who after all promises us eternal and abundant life. 
That is, the Bible, across its whole Christian canon of both Old and New Testaments, is providing its own, listen to this, God of Israel revealed in Jesus Christ, (laughs) answer to the foundational human question of how to flourish and thrive. God is interested in our flourishing and thriving. And I love that he uses the God of Israel revealed in Jesus Christ because that's the theme he's after. From the start of Genesis where we abandoned and left what it looked like to belong and went and tried to create a home of our own in the city of man all the way to the end when he brings us back into the city of God that we might be with him together forever. The God of Israel revealed in Jesus Christ through the power of the spirit in you and in me is the goal. And that when God begins to bring his life in our very being, you can't have anything as a result but human flourishing and thriving. I mean, if Christians aren't the most celebratory people on the face of the earth, we're missing something here. Like, we we have to be missing something in what's actually gone on in the miracle of Christianity as the God of Israel revealed in Jesus Christ lives in us through the Spirit and begins to change us from the inside. The cure has already begun. I want to read to you what Ray Ortland says here as an example because I found this to be so helpful to think of it in these terms. The gospel breaking through in our lives is manifested like Christ taking a beachhead in the dark recesses of our soul. Think Normandy and Christ shows up to invade your heart. He shows up on the beaches of Normandy after all all the pushing back against that your heart's gonna do, all of that sin and Satan has to offer. Christ wins and he invades the heart and he plants his flag there as the new victorious reigning king on that beachhead. And through the spirit, he begins to take new mangled dark territory in your life and in mine and shine his light on it. And he just goes from island to island, from nation to nation, in your heart and in mine, and he begins to stake his claim there. This is mine, and this is mine, and this is mine. And all of the opposition has no hope in your soul of keeping you in darkness because Christ, through the Spirit, is just invading parts of your heart for the rest of your life. This part is mine, and this part is mine, and this part is mine. And Jesus is claiming new territory in you and he's claiming new territory in me every single day and he will continue to do it completely until he finishes the work. Paul's theology tells you this in Philippians 1 where it says in verse 6 that he will complete that which he started. Every new shoreline that Christ breach, Christ breaches just reveals to us our true self as we flourish in the loving light of his kingship. He begins to show you the humanness that you were created to have. True humanness, not the subhumanness that it looks like when we don't belong to him. I want you to think of this. This Christ showing up in your heart and beginning to invade all of these areas that you and me get really fed up with about ourselves. So it means despite the lust that you continue to struggle with. Christ is invading that part of your life. He is staking his flag there and he will win. He has already conquered it and he will conquer it. That means your anger, your frustration at your spouse, your lack of patience with your kids, your malicious, unforgiving attitude towards your family. If the spirit is in you, he will conquer that. He is conquering it currently. He will finally conquer it. That's what he's doing right now as you sit, even if you didn't have your second cup of coffee and you feel miserable. 
even if you feel the death of your mortal body right now, or you're just, you know what I mean? As you get older, this happens. Like you wake up and just things hurt. You don't even know why they hurt. They just hurt. It's harder for you to get up and stuff. Like you start looking at the height of chairs as to whether or not you'll sit in them. Even in the death of our mortal body that's creaking, Christ is about the business of conquering new places of our heart to bring light to that kingdom of darkness inside of us. There's a world inside of you. It's why you're so complex and convoluted. But the good news of Jesus is that he's the Lord of that world. And the spirit is doing his work. The question we should ask ourselves is what new territory is Christ trying to claim in us right now where we sit? And maybe the battles that we're fighting and we're recognizing is actually Christ is about the business of taking that new territory and we are about the business of believing the condemnation of the enemy. And we need to join Christ in that effort. My son, I asked him if I could share this. He said yes. So my son, uh, he's been laying these one-liners on me recently. They're just amazing. And I don't know if it's because I'm listening more or he's just all of a sudden, you know, just a prophet. But last night we did the July 4th thing and we're, we're lighting off fireworks, having a good time. And it was late and we were coming home. And right now I've been working with, with him on uh, knowing the difference between right and left. So when we turn right or we turn left and kind of working through that. And so it was like almost midnight and we're following Morgan home. And I said, um, you know, it stinks when you get it wrong, right? It's like a 50-50 chance. So I said, hey, when we get up here, we're going to turn left. We're going to turn right to our house. And he said, right. And I was like, oh, no, it's left. And he proceeded to go. <sighs> and then he goes, getting home is hard, dad. And. I laughed and then I thought about it and I said, getting home is hard. Getting home is the hardest thing you'll ever do. In fact, getting home is impossible because we're just so lost. But Christ, rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, he found us huddled up in a corner somewhere in the darkness and he takes responsibility and ownership of us, even though we have disowned him. I mean, like the shoes in the middle of the, the floor in the living room, or whether it's your car in the driveway, or whether it's your child that's unruly, we disowned him. And he said, I take responsibility. I'll do whatever it takes. He knew, he foreknew how messed up you and I are. He foreknew how much we would struggle. And he took responsibility anyway and said, whatever must be done to bring you and I home, I'm in for it. And so he will face down the darkness as he always has in you and in me to bring us home again to be with God. The Heidelberg Catechism in the 1500s was written and it was written to help disciple children. And the very first question and answer that's given in the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is our only hope in life and in death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul to God. Why is that important? Why would they choose that as the first thing to teach children? I would contend that knowing that we belong body and soul to God is the very precipice. It's the very starting line for understanding just how amazing the gospel is of what Christ was willing to do to bring us back 
into the fold again, into his household again, into Eden again. Everything that needed to be done was about God's commitment of being our dad and saying, you belong. See, Romans 8 is a masterful work telling you, you belong home. You belong with Christ. You belong with God. So this morning, what does it mean? It means for the one who isn't sure that you would heed the calling back home of the Father through Christ and the Spirit. And for the Christian, I just want to ask you, what part of you is Christ claiming new authority over today to bring you into confirmation and conforming to his image? He's looking to make you new. And this newness is not taking things away from you. That's the serpent's lie. This newness is human flourishing. It's what it looks like to really live. And what great news it is that he's committed to it. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you for the call home. Thank you that you just didn't sit back in the heavenlies and wait for us to pick up the phone and admit that we were wrong. Thank you that instead you went and took every necessary step to throw us on your shoulders and carry us home. And so, Holy Spirit, we we open our hearts to you. And for those under the sound of my voice, whether here in person or not, that have yet to say that with their own mouth, I just ask that you'd help them to know they can say they open their heart to you, Holy Spirit. That you would fill them and they would feel something completely different. So much more than just physical experience, so much more than an intellectual knowledge, but a belonging, a sense of being home would overwhelm them wherever they are as they open up the empty hands of faith and receive the gift that you are. As we sing, help us to experience true freedom. As we take in the Lord's Supper, help us to experience true wholeness. We trust you, Jesus. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.